Hello and welcome to Season 13, Episode 4 of the Scene from Above podcast, which aims to showcase the latest and greatest in remote sensing and geosciences while keeping inclusivity at the forefront. This season of Scene from Above is brought to you by Up42 and GeoAwesomeness. Um, so I'm Morgan and I'm joined today by Flavia. We'll be your host for this episode today together with Gopika, who's sick for today's recording, but had the opportunity to interview an amazing woman in remote sensing who will feature in our interview session. Um, Flavia, how are you doing today? Hi, Morgan. I'm very fine. Thank you. And I'm looking forward to the outcomes of the World Economic Forum in this week in Davos. And there's a lot of things going on, including the Earth observation sector, so I'm super excited. And I'm also following some discussions in the carbon market community about carbon offsets projects. Gopika, where are you? We miss you here. <laughs> yeah, we really miss you, Gopika. And Flavia, I'm so glad to hear you're doing well. Yeah, I saw a really neat um, panel, I guess, that uh, one of the bosses from Planet is going to be there. So that's um, from Davos. So I'm excited to hear how all of those uh, presentations go and conversations, and hopefully they're really applied and have some great outcomes that affect all of us and for the better. Um, excellent. So now we can move into our new segment with our friend Rafaela. Rafaela, you sure were busy this month at a workshop that I saw you post on Twitter. What else is going on in the field of Earth observations and remote sensing? Hi, Morgan. Yes, that's true. Uh, this month I had the opportunity to attend the Julia Earth Observation Workshop to learn about how to process the geospatial data using the Julia programming language. And in December, I visited the ESA in Belgium and learned a lot from them about remote sensing in another workshop. It was both very interesting. But now let's go to the news. Let's start talking about the surface water and ocean topography satellite, the SWAT. This satellite's sharper, clearer view of water levels around the world promises to fill a stubborn observational gap, the coastal sea level. The information that can help coastal communities plan for the potentially devastating effects of rising seas and effects in small oceanic highlands which I am personally more focused on at this moment. SWAT's higher resolution is the key to closing observational gaps, and I think this is going to revolutionize the coastal science. And now news from USGS, the Landsat Collection 1 dataset was removed at the end of 2022. This removal includes all Collection 1, Level 1, 2, and 3, and the Collection 1 has not been updated with Landsat products since December 31, 2021, and does not include Landsat 9 data. NAS encouraged the users to migrate their workflow to Landsat Collection 2 as soon as possible. To finalize, 2022 was effectively tied for the fifth warmest year on record. According to NASA, this warming trend is alarming. Forest fires are intensifying. Hurricanes are getting stronger. Droughts and sea levels are rising. The past nine years have been the warmest years since modern record keeping began in 1880. This means Earth in 2022 was about 1.1 degrees Celsius warmer than the late 19th century average. 
This news and more about remote sensing and Earth observation you can find in my newsletter. The link is in the description of this episode. Fantastic. In our interview segment, we get to listen in on an amazing conversation that Gopika had with Dr. Lucia Fang, who's based in Singapore and is an expert in GNSS, tectonics, atmospheric water vapor, and so many things. Let's listen in. Hey, hey, everybody. My name is Dr. Gopika Suresh, and I am so excited because today we are joined by Dr. Lujia Feng, who is a Principal Research Fellow at the Earth Observatory of Singapore, Nanyan Technological University, Singapore. She's a geodesist who is trained as a geologist and geophysicist and now explores the atmosphere. She uses GNSS to study natural hazards related to tectonics, earthquakes, volcanoes, and climate. She started her journey working on volcanic deformation due to unrest in large calderas, shifted to tectonics, seismic and aseismic deformation during various stages of the earthquake cycle, and now uses atmospheric water vapor from GNSS to better understand climate hazards and climate change. She has a PhD in geophysics from the Georgia Institute of Technology USA, a MSc in Structural Geology, and a BSc in Geology from Zhejiang University, China. Welcome, Lujia. I'm so grateful that you accepted our invitation to be on the show. How are you? Good, good. Thank you so much, Gobika, for inviting me here. Yeah, it's really nice talking to you since you left Singapore. Of course, yeah. So our listeners don't know this, but I know Lujia from when I worked in Singapore and um, she was the first person I thought of uh, for episode four because of the exciting things that she works on. And she's going to tell us all about it in this episode. So yeah, Lucia, you want to dig into it? Tell us about your journey in geosciences and what made you choose this field and what are the things you're working on? I started my undergraduate study as a geologist because I felt uh, field works are so interesting and I, I, I like to go out uh, to see the world. And and by my friends, uh, thought I'm crazy <laughs> because they, they have a different perspective for geologists. They think geologists uh need to hike in the mountains with a backpack and a hammer, but that's not a now modern day geo geologist does anymore. Geologists also use a lot of data and a lot of data coming from the space, uh, using remote sensing data. So I also have like passion for um, data and uh, models. So I switched to um, geophysics for my PhD in the US. Um, I, I um, started learning global navigation satellite system, GSS. Um, at that time, it was called just GPS, global positioning system, because that time was only mostly uh, the glo uh, US global positioning system. The other system like the Europe European Galileo system, uh, Chinese Beidou system, and uh, the Japan QZSS system, uh, they were not, uh, now they were not exist at yep. that time. Mm. Yep. So I, I use the GS system to study to measure the how the crust moves um, due to earthquakes and volcanoes during my PhD. Um, that was uh, eye-opening for me because uh, when I started my PhD, I didn't know at all what GPS can do except giving us the location and the navigation where we can yeah. go. Mm. Wow, so um, even today, uh... If you think of GNSS or even GPS, we think of Google Maps, right? 
that's the first thing that comes to your mind or location. Um, so when you say yeah. you used GNSs to understand crustal deformation or movement, could you break that down mm -hmm. a bit and explain what exactly that uh, involves and how the data looks different? Sure. So um, we know plate tectonics. So that's why our Earth is so uh, uh, alive, because the plates are moving uh, relative to each other. And do you know when the plates move uh, relative to each other, it causes deformation on the Earth's surface. So it deforms the crust surface, which can be measured by GNSS stations we installed on the Earth's surface. So the um, motion can be millimeter level or centimeter level. So very small. Uh, in our daily life, you cannot uh, feel it at mm -hmm. all. But this, our instrument is high resolution enough can measure this uh, down to millimeter level. Mm. So uh, when the two plates uh, got stuck, we call it um, interseismic period. That's before earthquake, big earthquake mm -hmm. happened. So when they got stuck, we can measure how the uh, crust dragging mm -hmm. down if it's two plates, one on top of each other, uh, one on top of one uh, mm -hmm. the other, like uh, we call it subduction mm -hmm. zone. Like this. So, but when the earthquake happened, the friction which holds the two plates um, got released. Mm -hmm. So that the upper plate will bounce mm -hmm. back up. So that caused we call it co-seismic deformation. So this will be much bigger uh, deformation than the interseismic deformation. All these we can measure using GSS stations mm -hmm. um, when they are in um, suitable locations, mm, like along subduction zones where the two plates meet. Mm. So it's really important to have a GNSS receiving station to measure this. Y uh, yes. So when we measure the signals from the earthquakes or from pre-earthquakes uh, signals, uh, we can model mm -hmm. and to uh, trace back where the earthquake occur. Or if before the earthquake, we know which places has a largest potential may have us may have earthquake in mm -hmm. the future hmm. and how many gns stations do we have around the world can we do like a global analysis of this wow uh, i i lose count of how many stations that could be in um more than ten thousand for sure is that enough there are lots and lots of never okay. enough you all <laughs> Now you, you, you want uh, every inch of this has a GPS station. <laughs> okay. I, I don't know how many there are. It's, it's just people are putting um, more stations every day, every year. Yeah, it's just so many. Yeah. That's that give us uh, scientists a very good opportunity to uh, learn from the data. So then more data are collected, but I don't think that enough research in digging out the um, scientific application from the data. Yeah. And this is something you've worked on as well. You also worked on um, installing new GNSS stations. You were involved in the project called Sugar. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about the project and what it aimed to do? Sure. Sugar, the full name is the Sumatra GPS Array. 
well, we can also call it the Sumatra gene accessory. So Sugar Network was established by the founding director of Earth Observatory of Singapore, where I work for, um, Professor Kerry C. Um, he is a geologist, but he has a vision of the importance of having this mm -hmm. network installed along west coast of Sumatra and the islands west of Sumatra. So these areas um, are in the location where the Indian mm -hmm. plate and the Sunda plate mm -hmm. meets. So they, 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 they are in the plate boundaries, which is prone to have um, big earthquakes. Right. So the, the sugar project started actually in 2002, before the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami mm -hmm. earthquake. If um, I guess most of the listeners yeah. will know, that was a very devastating uh, earthquake, uh, magnitude 9.2 yeah. on the 24th of December. So, yes, yeah. Boxing Day. Uh, so uh, immediately after earthquake, more stations uh, were installed to capture post-seismic deformation after the 2004 earthquake. Also, they were, there were uh, two other events, larger than magnitude eight occurred, um, one three months later, another one three years mm -hmm. later after the earthquake along the, that area west of mm -hmm. Sumatra. So uh, Sugar Natural recorded the, 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 these two earthquakes and um, it has been giving us um very long record and very nice view into how and uh, where, when, uh, how these earthquakes occur in these locations. So it's uh it's it's very useful for um us to understand the earthquake hazard in that area and try to forecast future hazard too. So it's basically helping build. Uh, community resilience in that region against disasters like earthquakes. Right. That's yeah. great. Um, on the topic of GNSs, I also know that you're doing something that uh, very few people do with GNSs, which is you're entering the atmosphere using GNSs data. So um, tell us about this project and how uh, you decided to start working on it and what exactly it involves. So, um... I'm coming from the tectonic background, so atmosphere is definitely outside my trained uh, research area. But it's just um, when you process a position, you have to deal with the signals in the atmosphere too, because when the GS signals travel from the satellite to the station on the ground, it has to go through the mm -hmm. atmosphere. And as the atmosphere was a kind of troublemaker for we to get a good position. So that was considered as noise for um, most of a geodesist. Yeah. But in fact, that noise uh, can be turned into signal for the atmospheric scientist because that noise record very well how, how much water vapor in the mm -hmm. atmosphere and that information is actually very useful for uh, weather and climate. Um, so that's a kind of unexpected application of GSS. Not was not thought of even when the people invent, invented the GSS. Hmm. 
in the first place. Yeah. So what does it actually involve? So you have this, um, the atmospheric uh, distortion, let's say. We have this in radar as well. You know that, no? I mean, unexpected places, you'll suddenly have uh, atmospheric losses. So what does it involve in GNSS? Yeah. So you have the signal that um, is received on the station, but it is distorted because of, let's say, atmospheric water vapor. So in your research, then you take the signal off. And how do you then, what do you do with this information? So we call it a uh, delay mm -hmm. because the water vapor will cause the signal uh, mm -hmm. delay. Um, uh, the delay information is proportional to the amount of water vapor. So how the, the more delay you get, you, you get more water vapor. So from the delays, you can estimate um, the temporal and the spatial changes of the amount of mm -hmm. water vapor mm, at the quite high resolution because uh, GNSS can require one hertz and um, usually uh, 15 seconds is quite uh, normal uh, temporal mm -hmm. resolution. Yeah, And you can use this for um, weather forecasting, for example? If this information digests into like, weather modeling uh, simulation, yeah, it can be user forecast. Yeah. Cool. So, so what do you currently do with the atmospheric water vapor information? So right now, uh, we are trying to install more GNSS stations in Singapore, specifically for monitoring water vapor. Um, the, the aim initially was, you know, Singapore is very small. So the area of Singapore is a little bit over 700 square kilometers, which is just a small <laughs> little dot. So it's in any remote sensing data, it's just within one pixel. It's not yeah. larger than one pixel. So the spatial, spatial resolution from remote sensing data is not enough to monitor the water vapor changes yeah. in Singapore. That's um, why we need to install more ground stations to if we want to see the changes. Yeah. And also uh, the location of Singapore is in the deep tropics, which is... Um, an area has a rapid changes of water vapor over a very short distance and um short periods. It's not like the temperate uh, regions like yeah. where you are in Germany. It's it may, the water vapor may not change yeah. over a large distance. In that case, you don't need a dense network. But in Singapore, you need a really dense network to really uh, monitor the changes in small scales. Yeah. So what is the aim of your current research then with the dense GPS or GNSS networks in Singapore? Um, I hope to get better understanding of the first the distribution and also the changes over space and the time of water vapor of Singapore and uh, see how this uh, uh, water vapor information related to the rainfalls and the extreme rainfalls are how because rainfall come comes from the source of rainfall is water vapor right so yeah. it comes before rainfall so i want to see how this information can be used for uh improving forecast of extreme events or this okay great but this is a, this is a really long way and i cannot do it alone i'm right now i'm just in a observation stage observation first and then see uh can if can develop models to understand better yeah so what is the coolest thing that you've worked on or that you plan to work on the coolest thing i have worked on in my career is actually um 
three months after my paper published, one earthquake occurred and verified my results wow. in that paper. So what that was the was, paper about? That was super cool. Um, I, so that was uh, my PhD work. So I uh, was developing inter-seismic coupling models for Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica. So we have this um, GS network uh, in Nicoya, and the network has been recording more than a decade ago. It's a it's a campaign style. It's not continuous, but there are measurements for um, more than a decade. And my PhD compiled the historical data and our uh, latest measurement. So you compiled uh, historic and new observations? Yeah, I compiled a decade-long historical campaign data mm -hmm. and also our uh, recent uh, measurements from our campaign um, derived um, GPS velocities from the data. This velocity shows that the peninsula is uh, dragging down and also uh, moving away from the trench where the two plates move. Mm -hmm. So this is an indication of strain accumulation. Okay. So if the two plates got stuck and the uh, upper plate will, will, will go down and also will, will move away from the trench. Um, uh, and um, I use this uh, data set derived, uh, we call it interseismic coupling model, mm -hmm. which indicates the uh, where the strength accumulates. Okay. So this give us uh, information about where most likely another earthquake will happen. Yeah. And we published this paper in Journal of Geophysical Research, Solid Earth, mm -hmm. uh, in 2012, June. Mm -hmm. And three months later, in September, an earthquake magnitude 7.6 struck Nicoya kind of as expected because yeah. we know yeah. my paper was saying there there is an area offshore and underneath Nicoya um, was locked so yeah. there's a potential earthquake um, magnitude 7 ish earthquake yeah. could happen in that area yeah. and then earthquake just happened wow after so soon after the yeah. paper published yeah, so that was the coolest thing I think in my career. Wow, and with, uh, with pure luck, if we we were slow and yeah. got published later, then we were not able to capture yeah. the. Yeah. And that is just um, how important uh, using remote sensing and using all of the data that we have today is in forecasting and helping uh, predict such huge disasters like earthquakes and. I'm pretty sure your paper reached uh, at least one or two people in the in the region, and hopefully they were able to prepare themselves better. And this is what we intend to do with our research, right? Actually, um, one of my co-authors, uh, Marino Proti, he's uh, one of the well-known uh, scientists in Costa Rica uh, who advocates a lot of preparation for earthquake. So that area, um, even before I started working on that area, they, they already know that it's prone to earthquakes. Mm -hmm. But my work is just a, a provide um, improved model for the location and uh, how big the earthquake could be. 
Wow, Lucia, that's so cool. And you th- yes. you have to think of yourself as a earth warrior here because you really were like, you know, a superwoman there helping uh, improve predictions. And uh, it the cool thing about your research is that three months after your paper came out, the earthquake occurred. But the coolest thing for me is that you were able to predict something that helped. You, it's, you, you were able to predict it in a much better way than before. And I'm yeah, sure a lot yeah. of people are so- grateful. Yeah, the, the earthquake, I don't think the earthquake had a lot of casualty because the residents in the area really yeah. are well informed and they know it's going to happen. It's just a matter of time. Yeah. So this is, yeah, it's a success story for like how science could help yeah. uh, mitigate earthquake hazards. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, that's fascinating. And uh, yes, uh, you should um, print out a little sticker and put it on your laptop saying, I am a superwoman, because you did really do something that is uh, amazing. And it took a lot of work, of course. It was your PhD. And yeah, it, it, it's not just my work. So I've got so lucky to be in that position, like analyzing the data. It's 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 a work of like a, a generations of many of other people too. Yeah. yeah. On that note, now, since we're talking about how science is not just one person doing everything, it's a group of people. Um, I know you from Singapore, and I know that uh, uh, in Singapore, the team that we were in had more women than men. And uh, the reason I chose to move to Singapore is because I wanted to have a female supervisor because I'd never had that in Germany. So um, what is your view on this? What is the importance of women in research and in in STEM and in remote sensing or geology? And uh, do you think your research has been affected by the number of women that you've worked with? Definitely. I think women, um, they give a different perspective and a voice and uh, it's, which is very important. And the views of women are usually different from the guys. Um, I think that uh, uh, in terms of diversity, it's very important. We think from different perspectives, different angles, even for uh, the same topic. And I think my, I personally benefit a lot from working with women. And I, I, I don't feel like uh, isolated or I'm alone uh, because I work with so many women and, um, and so wonderful women, female scientists. And they give me uh, inspirations and motivations to, uh, uh, and uh, it's it's very interesting effect is um, when more women working on the science or STEM, then it will attract more younger women to work on these fields. I do feel that. I think the reason why um, uh, my institute has so many women is because we started with a few and then more women came including Gopika at once period yeah yeah and this is exactly what we're trying to do even with this podcast we're trying to showcase more women in the field so that Mm -hmm. one people understand that we do have a lot of amazing women scientists in this field and two we want the younger generation to know that they're not alone right I don't see difference in like women and the uh, men it's women can do uh, the same excellent work as men or even better in some uh, examples yeah <laughs> I agree um, you've also I mean this podcast we aim to showcase amazing scientists in the field but we also want to keep the aspect of representation and diversity and inclusivity always so um, we also like to talk 
talk about tough things that uh, mm. women or uh, underrepresented people such as you have faced. So one mm. of the things um, is the challenges that immigrants uh, face when they move to a new country and how that's an additional hurdle. It's an additional obstacle that we have to always go through along with the research that we do, along with the scientists that we are. Uh, have you faced any challenges? I know you've moved around. You went from China to the US. Now you're in Singapore. Um, how has your journey been as an immigrant? And uh, do you think you've had to do more than uh, a local, let's say? Mm, definitely. So first challenge uh, was definitely language for me when I first moved to US and uh, um, a spoken language and also written language, I have to work uh, definitely more on improving my spoken language language and uh, written language than the, like the natives. Um, um, and also um, in terms um getting uh, involved into more uh, society, uh, society. So um, like adaption, social, yeah. social adaption into the society um, was also hard. Um, um, but luckily there were also a lot of um, international students uh, from China when I was doing my PhD. So that was kind of circle. Uh, help uh, a support group can help each other yeah so yeah. I got help um in my first day I got help from my seniors yeah so um a, 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 a senior um he picked me up from the airport and also some uh, other um senior friends uh they they um host me in their apartment for a few the, my first few days in the U.S. so that yeah. was really helpful so I did the same to what when I became like mm, uh, more familiar with the environment, and I, I I did the same mm, to my junior. <laughs> so yeah. I helped them. When I had a car, then I, I drove them to the uh, supermarkets to buy uh, grocery or this. Yeah, I, yeah. I think um, um, we happy with each other. And you were lucky to find the support uh, in your community, let's say there, but. Um, I do feel that uh, universities, they, they're not doing enough to help immigrants navigate the challenges of uh, getting oriented in new cities and uh, finding accommodation, finding a bank account, finding a phone. I do feel like universities expect them just to figure it out. And um, Right, yes. Yeah, most of the support networks not coming from university it's yeah. mostly volunteer uh pe people volunteer for the the, the work yeah and so, these covid times where everything is virtual like when i moved to singapore we went we started working from home uh the same month that i joined mm -hmm. and i remember it was extremely challenging for me to get oriented uh, not just with the place but also with the group while everything was virtual Right. It, it was definitely even more challenging in the COVID time uh, uh, when you couldn't see other uh, your colleagues and your other people, the other people. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So, Luja, you've worked on so many cool things and uh, exciting things. I mean, you're also situated in Singapore, so you're in the right region when it comes to seismology, when it comes to uh, dynamic water vapor, when it comes to uh, storms and hurricanes and earthquakes and everything else. 
So I'm pretty sure it'll be easy for you to answer this, but what drives you to work? What is the, what motivates you to go to work every day? I think the number one is curiosity. So I'm always curious about uh, how the earth works, how the nature works. Um, another thing is a uh, sense of responsibility as a scientist, because I've, uh, I've studied for so many years and I've learned so many things. I want to use the knowledge and skills I have to really uh, make science more useful. So like solve some interesting scientific problem that will help uh, us better understand how the earth works and also help people better prepare for natural hazards. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you are really like an earth warrior. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. Not strong enough. I don't have enough muscle. <laughs> yeah, but I think uh, you're using all the muscle you can when it comes to data analytics. <laughs> yeah, that's what I hope to uh, do with the data. So there will be a more, even more data collected. So uh, I would encourage more people who work with earth science data. Yeah. So what's next? What are the great things that are coming from you in the next couple of years? What can we wait for? Mm. First, um, I definitely want to explore more um, in the direction of GSS meteorology uh, for uh, water vapor can uh, because uh, most of uh, the majority of the GNS networks um, that were built so far um, primarily for positioning, navigation, reference frame, and the tectonics. So these networks are collecting so much data and not used for atmospheric sciences. So that I want to do more. Um, another thing is still um, keep doing what I have been doing, what I have been doing for like looking at earthquakes and the tectonics, because Southeast Asia is just a region so active in terms of seismicity. We got recently we got uh, a few earthquakes um in Java yeah. and uh, yeah so uh, the our team at the Earth Observatory of Singapore, we, when there was earthquake occurring in our region, so the people at EOS will just come together, uh, have a meeting together to discuss the event and see uh, what we can learn scientifically and the, how this scientific information can be used uh, useful for how uh, people on the ground um, in terms of um, hazard mitigation. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I thought about you all when, um, when I read about the earthquake. When there is a either volcanic eruption or earthquake in Southeast Asia, then my colleagues and I will be busy. Um, are you using any of the GNSS data from the volcanic eruption to understand, uh, I don't know, a movement of volcanic ash or something? Could that be used? Uh, yes, it's a good point. Actually, GNSS data, the noise, uh, signal-to-noise ratio can be used for detecting volcanic plume it's 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 done already it's 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 uh the um test cases are confirmed it can can work yeah wow. yes yes it's a brilliant idea it's proved to be possible <laughs> but you need you need a, a good location though you need the station in a good distance to the, the volcano yes and also um the plume need to be uh a little higher yeah okay 
All right, Lucia. So our last episode also, we ended with a bunch of rapid fire questions. Uh, so I'm going to ask you a, a few questions and I'd like you to answer as quickly as you can. Okay. Okay. Um, so what is the best thing about working with GNSS data? There will be always new innovation you can do with GNSS. Yeah. Okay. And what is the biggest challenge? You need to learn a lot of new knowledge. Uh, that's not in your trained field. Yeah. Who is your role model in geosciences or geology? Uh, in terms of GNSS innovations, my role model is Christine Larson. She was, um, uh, for a time, I think she was the only woman uh, who worked on GNSS uh, in the early stage uh, of the GNSS uh, period. Uh, she was very innovative. She developed uh, GSS info. GSIR, we call GSS interferometric reflection. So yeah. she turned the reflect signal, which is signal we don't usually want, into important uh, signal for environment sensors. So yeah. she used that GSIR signal to measure water level, mm -hmm. uh, soil moisture, and snow depths. What is uh, a piece of advice that you'd like to give the next generation? I know you have a son. Uh, what would you like to tell the next generation of uh, young scientists? Never give up. Keep trying. Never give up. There will be always failures in our path to success. But I would encourage the younger generation never give up. What you see usually is the success stories. But there are failures behind the success stories people don't usually talk about <laughs> yeah that's great uh, and what piece of advice would you like to give women in science i would say uh believe in your potential so we can actually achieve a lot of things uh, including the jobs we have to do like raise a kid uh, uh housework but we can still do a lot of more things even with the burdens we have. Thank you so much, Luja, for taking the time out for being here. It was wonderful again to see you and talk to you. Uh, I miss our times back in Singapore. I think you and I, during the times that we did actually spend in the office, which was very limited because of the lockdown and everything, but I think we did uh, spend quite a bit of time together talking about a lot of things. I appreciate you as a scientist. I think you have a phenomenal vision of uh, what uh, can be done and uh, I think your passion for increasing community community resilience and helping people is something that every scientist out there should uh, understand and uh, respect. And yeah, just thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's really nice to talk to you again. Yeah, and thank you for the really nice words. I I I didn't know I'm a earthquake warrior. I. <laughs> But thank you for saying that. That was such a fantastic interview with Dr. Lu Fang, And I got to learn so much about tectonic, seismic model, and just generally how GNSS is more than just a GPS. It's so cool that she's able to forecast that an earthquake in Costa Rica would occur just using data. That's just so amazing. This is how important remote sensing can be for increasing communities' resilience to hazards. 
Yeah, I completely agree, Flavia. I learned so much from the conversation and I can't wait to continue learning more about GNSS. Um, like from my perspective, I'm always thinking about climate hazards and like such as fires. So earthquakes, very interesting. And I'm sure Rafaela will have a lot to say about this um, episode as well, her working in that with INSAR. Um, so many cool things you can do with remote sensing. And speaking of learning more, for today's episode, we would like to share an article from EOHub entitled Understanding the Earth Observation Value Chain by authors Alex Butkovsky in January 2023. In the article, Alex defines the Earth Observation Value Chain, segmenting into three main parts upstream, midstream and downstreams. The segments are impacted by both the initial drivers and the end users on either end of the value chain. Alex also reveals how the earth observation market has shifted over time and how that has influenced the value chain and explain many hot topics that we keep hearing, such as vertical integration. My God, I have heard this word so many times, <laughs> principally in the new startups coming off uh, in the topic in the area of earth observation so be sure to check out alex post and the large eo hub series when you get a chance and thanks again geo answerness and up 42 for supporting the season and now moving on from value chains <laughs> so to close out our episode we'd like to preview three facts about our next guest uh, for the next episode that will be released next month so here are the three facts for you first they're self-employed earth observation expert second they are a longtime user of google earth engine and third, they co-founded Women Plus in Geospatial. So if you have an idea of who it is, please tag or post on our Twitter posts um, and maybe you'll win an award. I say this every time and no one guesses. So <laughs> this is the chance. So stay tuned for our next episode. Um, this episode was led and coordinated by Dr. Gopika Suresh, myself, Dr. Morgan Crowley, and Dr. Flavia de Sousa Mendez with new, uh, news contributions from Rafaela Tiango and audio editing by Gopika Suresh. Thanks, everyone. Until next time. And remember, we are humans first, and Earth observation science is what we do. So be kind, be empathetic, and be creative. See you next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>